As you can see on the screen there, we'll be uh, reading from Ecclesiastes today, um, starting at chapter 5, verse 8, which is on page 665, if you've got one of those blue Bibles. And we'll be reading through to chapter 6, verse 9. If you see the poor oppressed in a, in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain, since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, When God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that his stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man." Even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Pretty much the song that got the Rolling Stones to fame. It's a song that has stood the test of time in a big way. That's interesting, isn't it? It has a pretty awesome guitar riff. That might have helped. But I reckon the words and their meaning highlight what humanity struggles with and it seems to go on and on. For 50 years, this song has kept going. And we'll, we'll probably figure out a little bit more about that song next week when we think about relationships But the idea of needing satisfaction is a thing 
that we keep on seeking to grasp and we keep on not being able to get it, even though we try. I'm not going to sing. I did that a couple of weeks ago and I know it was a raging success, but I'm not going to do it again. It was a one-off. Um, so what we're going to do today, why are you laughing? <laughs> Sorry, you got to keep the morning more, uh, Julie. That's, uh, we'll wait another time maybe. Um, so this idea of satisfaction, we're pursuing. Luke kicked us off last week. We're continuing on again. Can we get satisfaction? Can there actually be a song that says, I can get satisfaction? Well, how are we going to address it today as we hone in on money and the idea of wealth is we're going to think about how does the world think about money and satisfaction and spend some time reflecting on that. And I've um, ripped off some categories from a good friend of mine who's uh, done some uh, thinking and preaching on this. And and uh, then we're going to look at how God turns the world's view upside down. And is there a way to get satisfaction in life that money leaves us empty-handed? So let me pray, and then we're going to get into it. And I hope this will be encouraging for you, whether you are wrestling with what you think of God and you're looking for satisfaction, or whether your satisfaction is in Christ and you're continuing to wrestle with it. My prayer is, is that you will be encouraged to rest in Jesus and not in our money. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can already have an encouraging uh, morning this morning as we um, as we remember what you've done on the cross, as we uh, farewell friends, and as we sing praises to you. Now as we come before your word and engage with the world's view on money, help us to find our satisfaction in you and what your son has done for us. Amen. Now, as you look up on the screen, I've got four categories, and I'll explain them, so they're easy concepts, even if you don't uh, make sense straight away. These um, are four ways of describing how the world views money, finances, economy, right? These are four categories, and what I want you to do is you see those categories, you can write them in your booklet if you want, I want you to kind of put, where do you sometimes dabble in? Or maybe do you move in and around? Which one do you focus in on more? Because I, I probably swayed around all of them at some point in my life. The first one I want to point um, out, to, out to you there is economic atheism. This one has definitely got a stranglehold on Western society. It's the conviction that money is powerful and it's going to fix my problems. The more money I get, I realise I can do more with it. And so this is the solution. This, uh, uh, this quote I've, I've got here is that in rich countries today, consumption consists of people spending money they don't have to buy goods they don't need to impress people they don't like. That's a pretty uh, clever little quote there, isn't it? This idea that money is the solution. Now, how do we think about this? Well, the economic atheist thinks, well, I don't think there's a God anyway. And so what's the solution? Well, money gets me stuff and gets me able to do things. And so there's no God. So money has to be the solution. It's basically the belief that if I can just get a little bit more, I'll be set. And so it's not a, it's not a view for the wealthy necessarily, because it's from whatever you have, I just want that bit more. 
and that will help me out. It's tricky, isn't it? This idea of economic atheism, because money does play a big part in our world. It does actually help. This isn't a talk about money being bad. The Bible talks about money um, being good, used rightly. But that's one view. And the question that the economic atheist might ask is, does money bring satisfaction? And the answer would be, well, where else are you going to get satisfaction from? The second one, well, it's the, at the other pole, I think, is the uh, economic apathy. This is where you just go with the flow. Money comes in, money goes out. Money comes in, money goes out. There's no need for a budget. There's no need for planning, so there's no stress. Or maybe there'll be stress later when I realise my debt is massive because I never did a budget. But you're just very blasé about money because it doesn't really matter. I don't think about it. I just get on with life. Everything's going to work itself out in the end. Economic apathy. Is there satisfaction in money? Is money worth nothing to you? Well, it's irrelevant. There's no satisfaction there, but it's not. it's just there. Then we have economic ascetism. That might be the word that you're not familiar with. That word, it's kind of a, often has religious overtones. It's the idea of being um, self-disciplined and being abstinent of indulgences. And so when it comes to money, it's a strategy of moving away from consumerism, away from needing money. It's the, it's the way of self-denial. It's the way of focusing on more important things that usually... That, that matter. So if you've got Wall Street as being the, the kings of economic atheisms, maybe the hippies living on the farm are the, the kings of economic ascetism. Maybe these are people when everything falls apart and is, this is the option, this is the solution because money didn't work out. The question is, does money bring satisfaction? Well, it's just clearly no. So they've got three. Where do you fit around those? Because there's one more. Economic anxiety. This one, I think, is very prevalent. Very, very prevalent in our society. And it really works, comes into play when economic atheism doesn't work. When greed and money and all that solution isn't working out, anxiety kicks in. Money is everything and you want to control it. But when you can't control it, there's anxiety. When you can't get what you need, you get really anxious, whether that's in a, the scope of you know, massive budget to, I just want enough to eat. There's anxiety. I think we see that, and this, isn't a, this is not a wrong thing, right? With all this country being in flames, the, the solution that we have is to throw money at it which is good, right? We want to give people money. We want the insurance companies to pay up. We want people to actually be provided for. But the anxiety of not having anything is we want to provide money for people because money is the solution, rightly or wrongly, economic anxiety. Is money everything? I hope it isn't. I wish it isn't, but I think it is. And now I'm really stressed because I can't control it. There are four views of how we can think about money. And as Christians, we still do flirt with them, particularly the anxiety one, because I think those dealing with economic anxiety are masters of self-delusion, that we don't really have that problem or that we never have that issue. 
So what are we going to do with this? How are we going to wrestle with this as we leave those hanging in the background? Well, we're going to have a look at money through the lens of Ecclesiastes specifically. And we've had the passage read to us, and so you might get a feeling of where we're going, and it does get a lot more positive than that passage today, let me promise you. But the way we're going to start off is is that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book about how do we get meaning in life? Is there life? Because it just seems meaningless. And in this book, there are three things that highlight there's no meaning. And just to give us a snapshot of that, I'm going to just play a little bit of a, a, a video that I think I showed before a few years ago when we did Ecclesiastes on the three things that really cause a problem for us when we search for meaning. So that's going to play now. We're exploring three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And they're all asking the question, what does it mean to live well in this world? So we've looked at Proverbs, who you could think of as a bright young teacher. She's all about pursuing wisdom, an attribute of God that's woven into reality. And she's optimistic that if you use wisdom, you will build a successful life. But then we come to Ecclesiastes, who's more like this sharp middle-aged critic. And he says, You think using wisdom will bring you success. You'd better think again, because life here under the sun is meaningless. And that's a phrase he uses a lot in this book. But to understand this book, we have to realize first that we're hearing two voices. So first there's the teacher, and we've been calling him the critic. He's the main voice in the book. But he is introduced to us by another figure, the author. And he's the one who's collected the critic's words, and then at the end of the book summarizes everything and gets the final word. So why does the author want us to hear from the critic? Well, he wants to turn your view of the world upside down. And he's going to let the critic explore three really disturbing things about the world. And we should warn you, these are pretty intense. Yeah. So the first is the march of time. Or as the critic says, Generations come and generations go. But the earth, it's been here long before us and will be long after. No one remembers people from long ago, and all the people yet to come, they too will be forgotten by those who come after them. So, on a cosmic scale, you and I, we are just a blip. Stars are born, and then they die and form planets which orbit new stars, and those planets, they change over time and eventually turn up. And amidst this cosmic backdrop, my entire existence is like a blink in time. Which leads to the critic's second disturbing observation, that we are all going to die. Humans face the same fate as the animals. Death. All people. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, those who offer sacrifices to God and those who do not. They all share the same destiny. All this activity and madness, then we all join the dead. Man, this book is depressing. And so is the final disturbing thing for the critic, and that is life's random nature. So in Proverbs, life isn't random. There's a clear cause-and-effect relationship between doing the right thing and being rewarded. But the fact is that life doesn't always work that way. The critic has observed a glitch in the system. He calls it chance, or in his words, The race doesn't always go to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food always come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the educated. Time and chance happen to them all. So his point is that you can't really control anything 
in life. It's just way too unpredictable. So if I want to master life, then you're setting yourself up for a fall. Now, throughout the book, the critic uses a metaphor to tie together all of these disturbing ideas. He says that everything in life is hevel. It's a Hebrew word that means smoke or vapor. Like smoke, life is beautiful and mysterious. It takes one shape, and before you know it, it takes a new shape. And smoke looks solid, but try and grab it, it'll slip right through your fingers. And when you're stuck in the thick of it, like fog, it's impossible to see clearly. Now, our modern translations have lost the metaphor, and they usually translate hevel as meaningless. But if you read closely, the critic isn't saying that life has no meaning, but rather that its meaning is never clear. Like smoke, life is confusing, it's disorienting and uncontrollable. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? Well, surprisingly, the critic... Okay. We all upbeat and positive and happy about life? But it's helpful because what we're seeing is that the reality is God's word is saying in in Ecclesiastes that time, the fact that we're all going to die, the randomness of life and that we have no control, all of these things mean that it's hard to grab hold of what meaning there is in life. How can we get any satisfaction when generations come and go and if we understand who we are, we are a blip? And if we do have a high sense of who we are and our value and that realise that we're going to die, And that life, we can't control as much as we want to. See, the author's goal is to let the teacher deconstruct all the ways that we find meaning and purpose. And does that in all sorts of different ways in Ecclesiastes. And as we think about money, we see that money is a really bad way of seeking out satisfaction. That was the passage uh, that Kat had uh, read for us today is one of the places in Ecclesiastes that it does that. It'd be really helpful if you had that open with the Bible in front of you um, as we think about this. Because the teacher's view on money and wealth shows that seeking satisfaction, well, we need to find something else. Let me draw out some observations from this passage for us and then see where we can go instead of money. In verses 8 to 12... We read, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and injustice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed uh, by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, the king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income, this too is meaningless. So what he goes on to say is the love of money and never being satisfied with it when you want money, what results is oppression and injustice. And we see that over and over and over again. In verse 12, it's kind of like the sweet spot of being contented. The sleep of, of a labourer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Seeking money and not being satisfied leads to oppression and injustice in this world. The second observation we see here in verses 13 to 15, he says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune. The miserable outcome, the grievous evil, if you like, as he says, is that when you hoard wealth, It actually brings you harm. 
And the gathering of goods is no good at all because it destroys the one gathering it and it disappoints the ones waiting for it. Hoarding does not help. We can hoard all we like, but the theme that's throughout Ecclesiastes is that you're all going to die. Where does all what you've hoarded go? Not with you. Now have a look at verses 16 and 17. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. See, the foolishness of pursuing wealth um, is so great when actually the potential that wealth has for you, it's got more of an ability to cause you harm, to put you in darkness and frustration, affliction and anger, it says. And so pursuing wealth is not a healthy appetite, it seems. Then in the fourth observation, we get a little hint that is there something else? A remedy, if you like. Verse 18 to 20. This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Contentedness with whatever lot you have because you're not in control seems to be an alternative option. Because everything's from God, whether you've got a lot or you've got little. It's not your brilliance. So is contentedness a way forward? How could we do this? Well, as we think through this passage even more, there's an interesting kind of theme that flows through it in this section. In verse 11, 12, 17, 18, 19, and chapter 6, verse 2, there's this common word used that's translated in different ways, uh, consume, eat, eat, enjoy. And all these ideas is the idea of consuming something, the idea of consumption, what we consume and how it is important to us uh, is highlighted. So what we pursue, what we consume, reveals the nature of our heart and its impact on us. Wealth only creates a greed for more. So if you seek satisfaction with money... The warning of Ecclesiastes, and it's a theme that goes throughout the whole Bible actually, is be warned, pursuit of money with no satisfaction leads to oppression and injustice. Wealth increases, but so does your appetite for more. So you'll never find satisfaction. You hoard, the hoarding's going to cause you harm and leave nothing for your kids. Circumstances you're not in control of, the randomness of life, you had lots of money and now you're bankrupt and you put everything into that, there's no inheritance anymore and all your hopes are gone. If money is your goal and you cannot control it, there's darkness, there's anger and frustration. So what's the alternative? The idea of pursuing satisfaction in wealth isn't actually completely wrong when we have a right understanding of wealth, in a sense, because God does want us to pursue 
But the object of our pursuing is not a physical thing. It's God himself. It's wealth fails where God does not. God wants us to pursue him. See, the alternative isn't to say, well, if I trust God, then I will get all the wealth that I need, whether that comes or doesn't come. The alternative is my new wealth is different because it's about a relationship with God and being satisfied in his salvation. This is how we can deal with being insignificant in the moment of time. Because God, even though we're a short moment in time, made us in his image. The whole story of the Bible is about God putting in place a plan to save you and I forever. That's what we've already reflected on, isn't it, in the Lord's Supper. We have the gift of life with him forever. And so there's an opportunity to think, instead of searching after wealth, God can be the one who satisfies the longing of your soul. But what about death? That's the big problem in Ecclesiastes. God will satisfy the longing of your soul forever. That's the difference. Turn with me to Psalm 107. Psalm 107, if you just go back a little bit. This reminds us because if God's a solution, it'd be good if his character was one that we could um, trust in, right? Well, Psalm 107, like many of the Psalms, And as we see with Jesus in the New Testament, it starts off with, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures for a little while while you're on this earth. Is that what it says? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Contrast that with what wealth can do for you. Verse 2, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands from the east and west, from north and south. Some wanted in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. The Lord is a delivering God, and his love endures forever. There is nothing more satisfying than knowing our God. Look at verse 8. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Verse 9, he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. He doesn't satisfy the thirsty with the thirst of their wicked thirst, what they really wanted in their own desires. No, no, your thirst has changed into wanting to be with God. And his ways. And it's satisfied. That craving for real, lasting relationships, the craving to go beyond the grave, the craving to have meaning in life, he provides. There is nothing. This is the question that you have to ask yourself whether you believe it or not. There is nothing more satisfying than resting in the salvation of the Lord. Friends, life is not always satisfying. And if your journey as a Christian is to make it more satisfying, is you're going about it the wrong way. 
I can honestly say 2019 was the least satisfying year of my whole life with all the things that have happened and some of the things for you regulars that I've shared before and how things went. I would say it was an awful year. If I was to put it on 1 to 42, I'm 42 years old. That's another unsatisfying thing. But 1 to 42 year, right? And I was to put the most satisfying year here and the 42 is the least satisfying year. 2019 is the least. But it is the year, as I look on the end of it, where I actually have a greater appreciation for resting in the salvation of God because going through that means the eternal picture is clearer, that trusting in him is even more real. Depending upon him when the randomness of life and what you want to have happen and what doesn't happen works out, you can trust in him because his steadfast love endures forever. See, so often we can choose to make money our refuge and strength. There's a quote in a book by Brian Rosner from Martin Lloyd-Jones about money. And it says, anything that you and I tend to set up as the big thing, the central thing in our lives, the thing about which we think and dream, the thing that engages our imagination, the thing that we live for, the thing that gives us the biggest thrill, if it is anything other than God, it is idolatry. And if we seek satisfaction without God, our pursuit of a good life, which God wants us to have, is idolatry. Instead, God can be our fortress and refuge. Just flick back a couple more to Psalm 91. In Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He is the one that we can depend upon because he does not change. Look how the psalm ends. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God is the one who provides satisfaction, resting in his salvation. Isn't it a wonderful irony of what's written on the US money? What's written on US notes? In God we trust. On the very thing that we use not to trust in God. It's a beautiful irony. But we don't look at that and mock. We look at that and let it pierce our hearts. Because that's what you and I do, even though it might not be written on our money. You see, God deals with the problem of our insignificance because he made us in his image and he gives us life beyond the grave. God is not random. He has a big plan that maybe we can't see, but he is in complete control. He guarantees a satisfied life with him. Jesus is the proof of this. I love the story of uh, Jesus and Lazarus. Uh, you're familiar with Jesus and Lazarus and that story? In John 11, um, 25, Jesus 
uh, is, has a friend, Lazarus, and his sisters, and Lazarus is about to die. And Jesus uh, says uh, uh, to, um, to Martha in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says. And we won't go into the whole story, but what happens is Lazarus dies. And Jesus brings him back from the dead. Not because that was the high moment, that was just a little point. Because Lazarus is going to die again. That's pointing to the fact that he's truly the resurrection and the life because he is going to die and he is going to rise from the dead and he is still reigning and he is still alive and we are waiting for him to return. Jesus is the resurrection and the life and because he's done that, beyond the grave, you and I live, that you and I can be resurrected when we trust in him and what he's done for us. And so when he says to Martha, do you believe this? That is the question that travels 2,000 years to here right now and to you for you to answer the question, do you believe this? That Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So you can go on living life seeking satisfaction in any of the topics of this series. You can go on living life seeking satisfaction in one of the four options of wealth that we've looked at today. That I've highlighted. You can think, you know what? I hear what you're saying, but I don't have a house yet and I really need it. I've lost my job and I want one. That'll make things a bit better. I just want to make sure I can give my kids everything they need. They must, must get everything they need. You can't go on living like that. You can go on thinking it's so important and I've got to be in control of money and I've got to be a massive budget freak and control every single dollar because if I do that, I will be in control of money and nothing will stop me losing it. You can continue to do that. Or God can flip your whole paradigm upside down. And as we thank him for our blessings and what we've got, as we're content with what he's given us. We trust in him and seek satisfaction in him and not what we have. What do you want to do? It's a challenge, isn't it? See, God's word throws our search for satisfaction on its head. Real satisfaction or contentment cannot be found in our search for wealth and money and what it brings. True contentment is because Jesus is saying, you are thirsty and I have the water. The suffering servant in Isaiah pointing us to Jesus and the future hope that's to come highlights that in Isaiah 55. Uh, Let me jump there as well as I uh, get to Isaiah. I didn't mark it and now I'm having a bit of a spat trying to find it. Isaiah 55. giving you time to find it. That's why I'm doing it slowly. Here you go. Isaiah 55. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, and you who have no money. 
Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Come to me. That is where satisfaction is found. I can't tell you for the rest of your life you are going to have everything you need. I can't tell you whether there's someone in this room who's going to lose everything. Your job, you could turn bankrupt. I can't tell you that. But what I am far more thankful that I can tell you is what God's word says. You have everything you need because you will be thirsty for a life beyond the grave and God is saying, come if you are thirsty. True contentment has to be in Jesus. Our riches are what he has done for us. I want you to wrestle with uh, your contentment in life this week. We are becoming more and more wealthy, even in um, difficult times. Continue to realise wealth can be something that God has blessed you you with, that you can serve him with, or it can be the thing that pulls you away from him. And your life will be one of going back and forth and wrestling and thinking about that. But as we finish, I want to finish with how Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 sums it up so succinctly. Keep your lives free from love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Amen to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are are confusing beings who seek satisfaction in things that do not provide. Help us to renew our understanding of money. Help us to renew our understanding of real satisfaction in Jesus. Help us to continue to wrestle with this idea of satisfaction over this uh, coming summer series. And help us to come to the waters of Jesus who gives us life, who makes us significant, who deals with death, and who is in control of all things. Amen.